Well, this week, as Danny said, we begin a new series, an Advent sermon series, preparing our hearts for Christmas. And there are lots of ways, innumerable places in Scripture that we could go to prepare our hearts and our minds for the Christmas season. I thought this year it would be um, not just fun, but also enlightening for us to work through the covenants of the Old Testament in preparation for Christmas. Now, God is a relational God. He relates to people. He has relationships with human beings, and his relationships with human beings are, are always bounded. They have boundaries. There are, there are aspects of our relationship with God, things that we must not do, things that we must do, things that he has commanded us to do, things he's commanded us not to do. And, and God works his relationships with people through covenants. That, that word covenant sounds really formal, it sounds really biblical, and that's because it is. But a covenant defined, a covenant defined is, is essentially this. One, one scholar put it this way, that a covenant is a bond in blood. That it is, it is a, a bond of life and death that is sovereignly administered. So it's a, it's a bond, it's a, a promise-based relationship between two individuals that is administered, that is given by God. God gives the covenant and he keeps the covenant. He sets the terms for the relationship and he's the one who keeps the relationship. In the Old Testament, we find five distinct covenants, five primary covenants. Uh, some of them to individuals, some of them to uh, entire peoples. Beginning with Noah and then moving to Abraham, there's a, a covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant with the people of Israel at Sinai after they leave uh, Egypt, the, the slavery that they were uh, held in in Egypt. God makes a covenant to his servant, the king, David. And then in Jeremiah 31, we have the promise of a new covenant that God will establish with his people. Now, none of these covenants, none of these relational bonds, these relationships that God starts with its people are ends in and of themselves. None of them exist on their own or, or just for themselves, but rather all of the covenants point to and prepare the human parties of the covenants, the human beings that God is entering into a relationship with, prepares them for the work of God, the work that God will do through these relationships, through these people in their lives and in the future. Now, the five covenants of the Old Testament that we'll look at through the five Sundays of December do not stand alone and they don't function alone. The covenant that God gives to Noah and the one to Abraham and to Israel and to David, uh, the new covenant, none of them function by themselves, but instead they all work together to build upon one another and further clarify the purpose of all of the covenants working together. This is an aspect of what we understand in the Old Testament and into the New Testament of, of what is called progressive revelation. That God over time is revealing more and more about himself and about our sinfulness and about our need for a savior until Christ comes, until the, the fullness of God's revelation, which is God in flesh, is among us. Together, these five covenants that we'll be looking at in the Old Testament, flesh out the plan of God to redeem and to rescue humanity from their sin. A plan, as we said, that comes to its ultimate fruition, its ultimate fulfillment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. So as we begin, we look first at the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Noah. The covenant that God makes with Noah is a covenant to preserve continuity in the world so that God may reveal a salvation better than Noah's in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the purpose. That's where we're going as we look at this covenant together this morning. Well, let's 
read together uh, from Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20 and going through chapter 9, verse 17. And as we do, would you please stand together as we read God's word? Genesis 8, beginning in verse 20. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth will Uh, Every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God add blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. So here in these verses, we see this covenant, this promise-based relationship that God begins with Noah. To understand this covenant, though, you, you realize we're picking up sort of at the end of the story, right? To understand the covenant and what all it entails, it helps for us to look at, to consider the context of the covenant. Where does this covenant come from and why is God making this promise with Noah now? And looking at the context of the covenant, we see first, as Noah's story begins in Genesis chapter 6, the horror of sin. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's where Noah's story begins. Noah's story begins in a world corrupted with sin, a world horrifically corrupted with sin. God says, the the scripture says that, that the intention, every intention of man's heart was evil continually, 
all the time, never ceasing evil. God, who is a good God, a just God, punishes sin by sending a flood to flood the earth and kill all humanity and and even all animals that are on the earth. You might seem that that's a little bit, think that that's a, a little bit harsh, but this is what we read in Genesis 6, 11 through 13. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Because of the horror of sin, because of the destructive, dangerous nature of sin, and because it has uh, infested and infected the entire world, God sends his flood to destroy sinful man. That may seem harsh that God would seek to destroy all humanity, but... We find that this is the just punishment for sin, the right punishment for sin. It's the, the, the consequence of sin that God had warned mankind from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 16, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we read this. The Lord commanded the man, this is Adam, after he has created Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden. The Lord commanded Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So God gives a command, do this, but don't do this. You can eat anything you want, but don't eat from this one tree. Then the day that you eat of it, he continues in verse 17, you will surely die. The consequence for disobeying God, the consequence for sin in the garden was death. The consequence for sin in Genesis 6, uh, prior to the flood, the consequence would be death. And so God in sending the flood is not doing something mean or cruel. He's doing what is just. He's punishing sin as he said that he would. But in the midst of God's just punishment for sin, Concerning the context of the covenant he makes with Noah, we, we see in Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, God's grace to the righteous. God is just to punish sin by sending a flood, but he's also gracious to those who are righteous. Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Literally, uh, in the original Hebrew, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verses, uh, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So among all the men uh, and women on the earth at the time, there's only one who finds favor, who finds grace with God, and it is Noah. Noah is said to be a righteous man. That means he is in right standing with the Lord. It doesn't mean he's sinless. doesn't mean that he's perfect. text says that he's blameless, but it's a similar way of saying he's, he's right with God. God is not holding necessarily anything against Noah, but Noah is not perfect. Noah is sinful, just as all humanity was. But because he loves the Lord, fears the Lord, walks with the Lord, is, is seemingly uh, uh, trying to repent or, or turn from his sins, because he believes the Lord, The Lord has grace on him. See God's grace in the midst of his just punishment for sin here in Genesis 6 as we look at the context of the covenant. And we know the the rest of Noah's story. Noah goes on to build the ark that God commands. He brings all sorts of animals into it. God sends the rain and the flood and the ark is carried safely through it until God causes the waters to subside and the ark finds its resting place and everybody comes out and that's where we pick up Uh, at our uh, text here today in in Genesis 8, verse 20. 
But as we consider the context of sin, or the context of the covenant, particularly the horror of sin, God's just punishment for sin, and God's grace to the righteous, to those who believe Him, we do well this morning to understand that, that we are not altogether all that different from those who were living on the earth in Genesis 6 prior to the flood. You need to know and understand today that sin is just as deadly, it's just as dangerous, sin is just as deserving of punishment as it was in the days before the flood. And as far as our sinfulness goes, friends, not much has changed. For all of our our (laughs) trying harder, for all of our efforts at legislation, for, for all of our sensitivity training... We continue to be destructive, deceitful, despicable, sinful human beings. The current, everything in the news right now seems to continually point to the the sinful nature of man's heart. Every day we look at the news and we see another person sinning. Or another person's sin publicly exposed. And not little things like, like telling a little lie or stealing an eraser, but, like, but things like sexual harassment and assault. Things like lying to the federal government. Things like murder and, and, and you know, theft of mass proportions. Genocide. Not much has changed. Sin is still horrific. A just punishment still awaits every sinner. As Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die. But there's still a gracious gift of God awaiting those who are righteous by faith in him. So understand, friends, today, we we don't live in a world just because God sent the flood. He didn't get rid of sin, right? He preserved humanity and and humanity is sinful. So God doesn't deal, do do away with sin, right? But, But he does deal graciously with those who love him. So that's the context of the covenant. Now let's look more, more primarily at the, at the covenant itself. And as we do so, one key figure emerges. And it's not Noah. It's God. If ever you thought Noah was the hero of the story, um, I'm here to correct your thinking. God is the hero of Genesis, all of it, particularly this story. And so as we look at the covenant, and as we look at, the, at God and the character of God, we see first God who is the covenant giver. God is the covenant giver. We see in chapter 6, verse 18, even before the flood, God says this to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. In chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, the first part of our text today, the Lord says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. In chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, there we read God saying, Behold, to Noah, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you and so on. What's the point of all this? The point of all this is that God, the covenant giver, the, the, the covenant is God's plan. The covenant is God's plan. Let me say that a third time. The covenant is God's plan. Not Noah's plan, God's plan. God is the one who initiates the covenant with Noah. We saw that in chapter 6, verse 18. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. At that point, there's not yet any indication as to what the covenant will entail. But God says to Noah all the same, I will establish a bond, a relational bond between you and I. Isn't it interesting, and I encourage you to read through chapters 6 through 9 of Genesis this week, that in in all three of those chapters, Noah says nothing. 
the only recorded speaker in those three chapters until after the flood in chapter 9, verses 25 through 28, the only speaker up to that point is God to Noah. And when Noah does speak, it's only in the aftermath of a very embarrassing and sinful uh, event in his life. So, so again, Noah is not the hero. Noah is not the covenant giver. It's not his plan. It's God's plan. And we just see that by, by the words that the Lord speaks in this text. So the covenant is God's plan as covenant giver. But also we see that God is the one who decides the content of the covenant. It's not just his idea to to create a covenant, but it, but, but it is, he's the one who decides what the covenant will look like. Look at the, ver, the, the language of verse 21 of chapter eight. It says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the, the sacrifice of, of thanksgiving that, that Noah had made after the flood, the Lord said in his heart, so he's speaking privately, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God initiates the covenant with Noah in chapter 6, verse 18. And he determines within himself here in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, what that covenant will be, what it will look like ever before he even speaks it to Noah. So before God says anything to Noah, even before God establishes the covenant with Noah, he already knows what that covenant will be. He's already determined the bounds of that relationship. And then we see, as we, as we looked at just a moment ago, chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, God is the one who is speaking to Noah. Here's where the terms of the covenant are actually given. God says there, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, every beast of the earth, uh, with you, as many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the heart of the covenant right there. Here, where God gives the terms of the covenant that he'll never again destroy the earth by flood, we find again only the voice of the Lord. Noah is still silent. The bond that is created is created by the word of the Lord, from the heart of the Lord, without input from anyone else. And in setting the terms of the covenant, by being the only one to speak, the only, one, the only speaking person in this event, God makes himself the one, he makes himself the responsible party for upholding the covenant that he's making. God puts himself on the hook for upholding this relationship that he's making with Noah and with all the earth. Noah will not be on the hook for maintaining the bond. In fact, there's no requirement for Noah whatsoever in this covenant. Nothing that Noah has to do to uphold. So I hope that we would see the goodness of God here as the covenant giver. It it being his plan. That God is good not only to set the terms of his gracious promise to Noah and the earth, but also to be the one who will ensure that it is kept. So the covenant is, is God's plan, but also in, verse, in chapter 8, again, verses 21 through 22, we see that it's God's promise of preservation. This is a covenant of preservation, a promise to preserve. Initially, we see the first part that it is a promise of preservation uh, by, uh, by means of the fact that God promises to never again curse the ground by destroying it. That language that we we see there in verse 21, I will never again curse the ground, is language that should sound familiar to us. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, after Adam and Eve disobey the command of the Lord, they eat of the forbidden fruit, they have fallen, God uh, pronounces a curse upon Adam there in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, we read this, To Adam the Lord said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, eaten uh, eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Genesis 8, verse 21, again, the Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You see the the parallel there? There in Genesis 3.17, the land, the ground is cursed because of Adam's sin. It will be hard for him, hard for humanity to produce food from the ground. It takes work. I've never been a farmer, but I know I can't grow a garden. So those of you who have success, you know the kind of hard work it takes to to grow a fruitful crop. That's part of the curse. The the labor that you put into growing stuff in your garden that farmers uh, put into to, to growing crops to feed the nation and the world is part of the curse. That curse is, should come to mind here when we see Genesis chapter 8. But the curse that God brings upon the ground in Genesis 6 in bringing the flood is far more severe than just toil in, in, in helping things and getting things to grow. He destroys the earth. But then here in Genesis 8, he promises, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that again. Though Noah is not perfect, he's righteous. He's right with God. He's not sinless. Though Noah is not perfect, God is making a bond with Noah and with all of the earth not to curse the ground again by destroying it, even though, catch, that the intention of man's heart is evil even from his youth. God says, Noah, you're still a sinner. You're not perfect. People after you will continue to be sinful. Even though the intentions of your heart are evil all the time, I will not destroy the world again as I have. Friends, this is a merciful relenting, a merciful withholding of what the sin of man deserves. God's covenant of preservation with Noah is incredibly merciful and gracious. God is here now withholding the the fullness of the curse, the fullness of his wrath against sin that he has just previously rolled out on the world in all of its wretchedness in the flood. The covenant is God's promise of preservation, never to curse the ground by destroying it again. But it's also his covenant of preservation to sustain the normal operation of the earth. We read there in uh, chapter 8, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God is promising that humankind can expect the normal operation of earth to continue in perpetuity. The the reason the sun comes up in the morning and sets in the evening is because God is preserving his covenant with Noah. The the, the reason we still have seasons and seed time and harvest and all that, the the reason that it's going to finally get cold this next week in December in New Mexico is because God is preserving his covenant to Noah. So the the seasons, the rotation of the earth, the the movement of the earth around the sun and the moon around the earth to 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 influence its tides and all the all of that, everything that we know in the universe as it currently functions is because God continues to keep his covenant to Noah, to preserve it, to keep things going. It's a promise of preservation, but it's also in chapter nine, verses one through seven, it's God's blessing to mankind. God isn't just preserving the earth. He's also blessing those who live on it. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and then again in verse 7, we see this phrase repeated, be fruitful and multiply. 
That it actually frames the content of the verses in between. We find here again another parallel to the creation account, don't we? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. As God has just finished creating man, he says this, God blessed them, the man and the woman. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blessed Adam in the garden saying, be fruitful and multiply. God blesses Noah after the flood and his family saying, be fruitful and multiply. The exact same language. God giving the same command to uh, uh, Noah as he gave to Adam and Eve. He's giving this creation blessing of Adam now to Noah. And in so doing, he's showing that he, that God is not done with humanity. He's not given up on them. He's not quit on them. He is enduring with them. And neither is God done with his first intention for them, which is to fill the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. God blesses Noah with this blessing to be fruitful and multiply. But also he blesses Noah with the responsibility and all, all mankind after that with the responsibility to care for the earth. Look at uh, Genesis 9 verses 2 and 3. The Lord says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and bird of the heavens, every creeping thing, every thing that lives in the sea. Verse three, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. These verses, again, clearly reflect Genesis chapter one, 28 through 30. We just read Genesis 1, 28, but here's 29 through 30. Again, after the creation of Adam and placing him in the garden, God says this, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree which, uh, with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and every creeping thing uh, on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So God entrusts Adam with care for creation, with, with a plan for his subs- sustenance. He can eat the green plants for his food, and, and he gives the care of creation to man. So also here in Genesis 9, God doing the same thing with Noah. The point here being that even as God gave Adam and Eve the responsibility to care for the earth and to manage it, with all the resources that they would need to do it, he does the same here with the, as some would say, second Adam, with Noah. God providing Noah a means of sustenance, both plants and now animals. Uh, not, this is not to say that animals were not prior, uh, uh, previously consumed for sustenance before the flood, uh, but that God is explicitly blessing the eating of animals uh, after the flood. And so you carnivores can rejoice in that this morning. But he also gives uh, to Noah... The responsibility to care for the earth. Right? He said, he's, he's put the fear, God has put the fear of man in all of the animals so that man might have dominion over the earth. Now, dominion does not mean domineering. It doesn't mean that, that, that we use it all up until there's nothing left. It means we steward it, we manage it well. God is giving uh, creation care, the responsibility and blessing to care for creation to Noah here again. And with that simultaneous responsibility and blessing to care for the earth, God gives the expectation to Noah that, that he and all those after him will respect life, that they will respect life. In chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, we, we have uh, th- these uh, commands a- a- against uh, eating food with blood in it and commands against killing other human beings. There's a lot of uh, vocabulary, of war, uh, uh, discussion about blood in these verses. And life, the connection between blood and life is obvious, right? No creature that has blood can live without blood. 
If a person, if an animal loses too much blood, it will die. If you go to the blood bank and they take a gallon instead of a pint, you're, you're in big trouble, right? <laughs> blood and life are, are in, integrally linked in creation. And so God gives two commands. The first is he prohibits man from eating meat, eating food with blood in it or of drinking blood. God gives this command to Noah, to his offspring, to, to separate Noah and his family and all those who would come after him from pagan people in the world before him and even after him who as part of their worship of fertility gods would drink blood of animals. Man is to respect, to respect the life that God gives. Even the, the life that God gives to animals, the, the life that he gives to animals that will ultimately sustain the life of humans as they consume it. And so God says, respect life. Don't eat meat with blood still in it. That's just, it's just not right. So he gives this command to, to not eat uh, meat that has blood in it. But he also he gives a, a more stark command, a command to, uh, that, that pertains particularly to mankind one to another. Mankind is different. It's more, we are more valuable to God than animals. And so God reminds Noah of the certain punishment for intentionally taking the life of another person. Right? He says uh, in, in verse... Uh, see, I lost my place. Uh-oh. In verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh... Excuse me, nope. Verse 5. For your lifeblood, God says, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Murder is serious. Murder is serious because it is the intentional destruction of a creature who bears the very image of God on their soul. Murder is a crime against the one who is killed, to be sure. But it's also an insult to the creator who placed his image on that person. We find in Genesis that, that though mankind will continue to be sinful, God will never lose his love for mankind. God never takes his image back from them. Rather, he promises to preserve them. He promises to preserve the constancy of the world. He promises to protect their very lives by giving this covenant to Noah. So as we look at God, the covenant giver, we, we do right to see and to know that God is exceedingly kind and exceedingly gracious to preserve sinners. Friends, the reason we have life today is because God continues to preserve us. To, to preserve the world as it is operating. The reason you don't die the moment you first consciously commit a sin is because God is continuing to be gracious to you, continuing to preserve you. And sometimes it's, it's hard to see the goodness of God's grace in just maintaining the universe the way that he does. But when we understand our sinfulness and what our sinfulness uh, really deserves, we begin to see the greatness of God's grace in simply preserving life the way that he does in this covenant with Noah. When I was a, a kid, and maybe you did this too, uh, we'd go to the pool in the summertime or if we went to like a hotel and, uh, on vacation and they had a pool and a hot tub, we would play this game where we would jump in the hot tub and you get all nice and warm, right? And you're feeling really good in the hot tub and then you jump out and you run to the pool and you jump in the pool and the pool feels freezing. 
the swimming pool is just as cold as it was before you got into it after the hot tub. Or we do it vice versa. You get in the pool, you get acclimated to the pool, then you jump out and you run and you get in the hot tub and you burn all your skin off, right? The hot tub is always as hot as it will be and the, and the pool is always as cold as it will be. But the heat or the coolness is, is set apart. It's, it's amplified when, when we spend a lot of time in one and then quickly jump to the other. Here's what I mean. If we spend all of our time in the, in the swimming pool, in the cool swimming pool of our sin, never, never dealing with, never recognizing the heat of God's judgment for sin in the hot tub, we will neglect, we will fail to see how hot that really is. At the same time, if we're stuck in the pool of, of sin and we think we're all good and everything's gravy and you're having a good time, we will uh, neglect to understand uh, the, the fullness of God's grace to us by not unleashing all of his wrath against our sin. And so we do well to, to examine our sin by contrast in, God's, uh, uh, in contrast to God's holiness, God's righteousness. And we do well to understand our life now in contrast to or in conjunction with the grace of God, not unleashing his wrath upon us. God is exceedingly kind and gracious to preserve sinners, friends, and he deserves our worship for that. God in this text is the covenant giver, but he is also the covenant keeper. God, the hero of the story, is the covenant keeper. In verses 9, 11, and 16 of chapter 9, we find that God gives this covenant to Noah and to all the earth after him unconditionally and forever. In chapter 9, verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Uh, So it's not just for uh, Noah, but it's also for those who come after him. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. God gives his covenant unconditionally and forever. This is a promise that God makes for generations to come. It's a covenant that God has kept for thousands of years to this point today, and he's continuing to keep it even now. Every moment that we are breathing is a gift of God's grace and preservation. So let us not think too lightly of God's bond with humanity in this covenant. Let us not take for granted the, the, the continuing cycle of seasons and the movement of our earth around the sun. Don't take that for granted. That's all of God's grace and his faithfulness to keep his promise. God gives his covenant unconditionally and forever, but he also gives a sign to confirm his covenant. Not only is God going to keep his covenant now for thousands of years, but he also gives the covenant a corresponding sign. He gives it a reminder. We read in verses 12 through 17, the the sign of the covenant is the bow in the clouds. We uh, understand to be the rainbow in the clouds. Covenant signs exist all throughout Scripture with various different covenants. They exist to point to realities beyond themselves. That's what any sign does, period. Whether it's a symbolic sign or a road sign, it's pointing to a reality beyond itself. And so here God establishes the rainbow as a sign to himself that will be visible by mankind to remember. That is, to keep in the forefront of God's mind. Not that he can ever forget, but just to, to tell humanity, this is always ever in front of me. His promise to, revent, to, to relent excuse me, from flooding the earth as a means of judgment for sin. And some of your translations may say, uh, have God saying, I have set my rainbow in the clouds. But literally, it is saying, I have set my bow in the clouds. 
It's the same kind of word. It's the same word, bow, in the original language that is understood uh, to mean an archer's bow or a hunter's bow, a warrior's bow. God is hanging his bow in the sky. He's put his rainbow as a symbol of uh, of his weapon of wrath that he has hung up because he's not fighting. It serves as a sign of God hanging up this weapon as, a, as an indication that he is relenting from bringing, bringing his wrath upon mankind. It's a symbol of God ceasing from war against humanity and an encouraging one for mankind to be sure, to know that God has not pointed, he is not currently right, directing his wrath against us to destroy us immediately, but he's waiting patiently, patiently relenting from disaster to do something else. So as we look at God, the covenant keeper, the one who faithfully keeps his promise to Noah, we should recognize God's faithfulness to his covenant with gratitude in our hearts, with gratitude in our hearts. But look also to God's continued grace in that his continued preservation of the earth as a reminder for your own repentance from sin. Yes, thank God that he has relented from wrath, but also use God's continued patience, God's continued relenting against uh, relenting of his wrath against your sin to remind you to keep repenting from sin. Sin is still dangerous. Sin is still deadly. Sin still separates us from God. God, by preserving your life, by not destroying the earth for your sins, friends, God is being gracious and merciful by giving you time to recognize the danger and destructiveness of your sin. God is giving you opportunity to see how deadly it is. He's holding back disaster for your sin, for my sin, to give us opportunity to turn from our sin. To ask God to give us a new heart. To ask God to give us holy intentions. To trust in His Son, Jesus. To ask God to, by faith in Christ, give us the will to walk with God and not against Him. God's keeping His covenant to Noah and all generations afterward. To allow us to repent. To allow us to see the danger of our sin. To to want to not sin. Ultimately gets us then to Jesus. What does Jesus have to do with Noah? We see in the pages of Scripture, but particularly even here just in Genesis, that Jesus is the covenant purpose. He's the reason for this covenant. Why does God make this relationship with Noah to preserve the earth? So, so Jesus. So that Jesus. Jesus is born under the Noahic covenant. Just like every other person ever born after Noah, just like you and me, Jesus was born into a world preserved by God's bond with Noah and the earth uh, for all generations after him. In fact, we, we ought to notice and affirm that God's covenant to preserve the earth from judgment is precisely so that there will be a world and a humanity to send his son to save. God doesn't send his perfect son into some sort of utopian paradise where Jesus will just be one among many perfect people. God sends his perfect son to be born to a virgin named Mary who is engaged to a man named Joseph, both of whom were sinners and who lived in a world full of sinners. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God in flesh, is sent by God the Father into a broken, sinful, evil world, preserved by God so that he can save it. Do you see the beauty of God's grace in this? 
that instead of wiping all humanity off of the earth, including Noah, starting from scratch or just not starting over at all, God instead chooses one man and his family from among all the wicked people of the world to preserve them through the destruction that they deserve for their sin. And then when they are safely delivered from that destruction, God promises never to judge sin that way again but instead to keep the universe moving as it always has so that he can ultimately do more than preserve the world. He holds off his judgment so that he can save it. Jesus is born into a world that exists under the Noahic covenant, but also, and ultimately, Jesus is the man who brings an everlasting salvation. Noah's salvation from the flood was, was, was temporary. It was a one-time kind of thing. Noah still would die, Okay. But God sends Jesus as, a, as another kind of Noah, not as the second Adam, but as the last Adam, to bring an everlasting salvation. God's purpose in the covenant with Noah was to extend mercy to humanity so that his perfect purposes of salvation might be accomplished in Christ. God delights in saving people whom he has made in his image. Scripture tells us that God loves to save people from their sins. His delight in salvation, however, does not negate, it doesn't nullify, it doesn't make void his just and necessary punishment for sin. We still deserve God's punishment for our rebellion against him. But God's salvation of Noah is gracious and merciful, and it serves as a type, as an example, as a, 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 a foreshadowing of his ultimate salvation of sinners through great, by grace through faith in Jesus. While Noah was righteous by his faith, as Hebrews 11 uh, uh, verse 7 says, Jesus is the very righteousness of God. Where Noah's obedience causes himself and his family to be saved, Christ's obedience to be born a man and die as a substitute for sinners provides salvation for all who find themselves united to him by faith. In Christ's death, He endures the flood of God's wrath for sin. And as those who were in the ark with Noah were saved by God's uh, saved from God's wrath against the sinfulness of man. Those who find themselves in Christ will be saved from God's wrath forever. Noah, as we said, was the second Adam. Jesus is the last Adam. He's the one man through whom God will save many. As the last Adam, Jesus is the familial head. He's the the patriarch of a new family. New family of all those who are his offspring. But as we know, Jesus doesn't have any biological offspring like Noah did, like Adam did before him. Theirs was an offspring of biology, but Jesus' offspring is is an offspring of faith. There are those who are born again of God's word by faith in Jesus, who who, who have been born again in spirit, given a new life from within. Jesus is the purpose of the covenant because he's the one who comes to to create a new people for God. A people who will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. In Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21, we read the Apostle Paul explaining how this is so. This is what Paul writes in Romans 5 verses 12 12 through 21. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Here speaking of the law that's uh, given to the people at uh, Israel at Sinai, the Ten Commandments. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. The wages of sin is death. 
even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Skipping down to verse 18 of Romans 5. Paul writes, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, that is separation and, and eternal destruction for those who are uh, opposed to God. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, speaking here of Jesus' death on the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam in the garden, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, speaking of Jesus on the cross, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What's the point of the covenant to Noah? So that God can preserve an earth into which his son Jesus will be born so that he can die for your sins and be raised from the dead so that you can trust in him and his sacrifice in your place. To, to receive forgiveness of your sins because Jesus has paid for it. And to receive eternal life and a right relationship with God now through your faith in Him. Friends, to enjoy the real purpose of God's covenant with Noah. To understand its, its real meaning. To, to fully apply the covenant of Noah to your life. You must trust your life and soul to Jesus and there is no other way. That's the point God's promise to Noah. And it's what God is, is leading you to today. Even in his patience, preserving the earth now, God is pleading with you, trust my son, turn from your sin. My son who was born a baby in a manger in Bethlehem so that he could die in your place. Trust him, trust him, trust him. Don't endure the wrath that is coming for your sin because it's coming. God says, I've provided a way out through faith in my son and a better life that comes with it. Trust him today. Let's pray.